Hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to dig deep into scripture today into a topic that for a long time really bothered me. And that topic is the genocide that we see in the book of Joshua. I'll tell you why it bothered me. First of all, I read about God so loved the world in John 3.16. And then in 1 John, I read God is love. And Jesus tells me, and you as well, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. So there's this constant emphasis of love in the New Testament that we see in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But when you look at the book of Joshua, man, you go, this is some rough stuff. So how do you make sense of it? Can you make sense of it? I mean, if you just take it at face value, you know, you kind of think this is very contradictory to what I believe I know about God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So let's hash this out. Let's figure out how we can cut down the middle and truly understand this entire topic. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Joshua, but when you read it, you can really cut it into two halves. The first 12 chapters are about the conquest. The rest is mainly about the allotment of lands. So when you read the first six, uh, excuse me, the first 12 chapters, it reads a lot like Deuteronomy, while the latter part is considered mainly priestly. So one of the most complex parts of the book is how violent it is and how this reflects on God's character. After all, it was in Leviticus 19.18 that God commanded Israel to love their neighbors as themselves. Jesus reiterates this too. So how do we face the rampant violence in the book? And there's this one word that's consistently used in relation to the book of Joshua, genocide. Now, when you and I think about genocide, we think of ethical cleansing of sorts, kind of like what the Nazis tried to do with the Jews or how some other nations have done to some of their own indigenous peoples. But let's put our head around this and dig really deep. So I invite you, first of all, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, which says, remember, God is speaking to Abraham. He says, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. That is the promised land for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what a lot of archaeologists and scholars believe and historians is that Abraham lived around 2100 BC. So if you look at this, the conquest is placed in the 13th century. So you can place the mercy and long suffering of God within a 700 year period. So God promises this land to Abraham, but when he did, he mentions that the sins of the Amorites are incomplete. So God's judgment or conquest of the land wasn't something that he just willy-nilly thought of at the last minute. But he, in his omniscience, knew that it would come to this. But when you think about it, 700 years is a pretty good amount of time for people to get their act together. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5 God tells Israel through Moses, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to occupy their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is dispossessing them before you in order to fulfill the promise that the Lord made on oath to your ancestors, 
to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, here's the thing. God did not order, as we seem to think, their utter destruction. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you. So notice this. There's going to be a preemptive clearing of the land by God. And he lists the various peoples there, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and says seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Now that show them no mercy, we're going to look at something a little bit later that that balances that. So God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, that he will clear away many nations before you. Now you think in your presence, but the clearing away is going to occur over a period of time so that when Israel goes into the land, they're not going to run into as many people as what we may think would be mighty nations occupying the land. Also in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 through 18, but as for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. Now, as we read these things literally, you're going, man, this is bad, right? God really has it out for the for this people. But the one thing we have to keep in mind is that for a 700-year period, they have sinned, and God judges that sin. Now, I want to point out that Genesis 15, 16, God says, in the fourth generation, they shall return here. So you and I would think, at the very least, maybe 400 years. Maybe that's how you could count a generation in that time. Um, the timeline that I take, that Abraham lived around 2100 BC, and that Joshua went into the promised land in the 12th century, or excuse me, the 13th century, um, I take that based off of what archaeologists have uncovered as well as historians. Uh, I don't think you can always interpret numbers in the Old Testament literally. And I think a lot of people get in trouble when they do that because ancient Near Eastern peoples did not use numbers the same way that we did. Numbers had a very, very significant symbolism to them. One way of processing numbers is a result of Newtonian reasoning, which is how we process them. But for the ancient Near Eastern peoples, numbers weren't always used that way. So God mentioned four generations in Genesis 15, 16, but in order for us to understand, excuse me, to understand what he meant by that, we would need to investigate what they understood a generation to be, if literal, or what that meaning was to be symbolically. But I mention that only for the sake of clarity and for the sake of this podcast. So the first verse, the first verse, the first point is that this is something that God in his omniscience, that is his all-knowing, 
sees and knows will happen. And he will have to judge this people because of the, the defilement of the land and the evil that they have done. The second point that I want to make is that we observe that God is going to preemptively remove people from the land. So he doesn't intend that these folks be completely exterminated or annihilated. So if you look in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23, beginning with verse 28, God says, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. So God is speaking of a gradual exodus of these people, for lack of a better term. Now Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning with verse 22. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to make a quick end of them. Otherwise, the wild, an the wild animals would become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into a great panic until they are destroyed. He will hand their kings over to you and you shall blot out their name from under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. One passage that I've already looked at, but you can take note of, is Deuteronomy 9, 4. When your God, excuse me, when the Lord your God thrusts them out before you, do not say to yourself, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord brought me in to occupy this land. It is rather because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. So God wanted to drive these people out. He did not intend their total annihilation. That's the second point. So point number one, God was going to judge their sin. Point number two, God was going to gradually drive them out before Israel took the promised land. Now, point number three, archaeology has demonstrated something. Cities like Jericho and Ai, they were not civilian centers, but they were actually military outposts. And something else that we know, the towns and cities in Canaan, during the time we believe Joshua and the Israelites took the land, archaeology has disclosed that those towns and cities were nearly uninhabited during this people, the 13th century. So after the conquest, we even observe Canaanites living among the Israelites. And the book of Judges points out how this cohabitation became problematic for Israel. So the cities that they had to siege were military outposts and they were not civilian centers. Also, from archaeological excavation and exploration, the period that the conquest occurred, that we believe it occurred, demonstrates that a lot of these cities and towns were mostly uninhabited. So the Lord did his part in driving them out gradually, not all at once, so that the land could be sustained. So by the time they go in, the job is pretty well done and rather easy to do. So that's the third point. The fourth point, Israel was actually commanded by God before sieging to offer terms of peace. Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 through 13 
When you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you at forced labor. If it doesn't submit to you peacefully, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. Now in the book of Joshua, only the Hivites of Gibeon accepted those peace terms, but everybody else didn't. You'll find that in Joshua 11, verse 19. So let's recap. Point number one, God in his omniscience knew that he would judge this sinful people. Point number two, God gradually drives the people out by pestilences and swarms of hornets and so forth so that we get to point number three, by the time the conquest occurs, there isn't an enormous population of innocent civilians, but there are some military outposts where they have to fight. Fourth, before doing this battle, terms of peace are offered, and only the Hivites chose to accept those terms of peace. Here is the final point, the fifth and final point. Not everything that we read should be taken literally. And this is often an error we have when it comes to reading the Bible. Joshua falls into the category of what is known as an ancient battle narrative. And those were not written like modern books of history. Ancient war narratives contain battle idioms. So, for example, when somebody says it's raining cats and dogs, we know not to take that literally. The understanding is that the rain is very heavy. But another part of ancient battle narratives is exaggeration. Now, we expect a level of accuracy that conforms to journalistic standards, but ancient writers wrote for literary effect. We might think of it sometimes as talking trash. Another example of this is how Joshua uses language to state that they took all the land and defeated all the kings and utterly destroyed the Canaanites. The point really is God had exerted complete control over the land. Because as you read through Joshua, it's clear that Canaanites still live there, and he even acknowledges that. So when we read the book of Joshua, and if we're ever troubled with this notion of genocide, there are explanations that relieve the tension that we might see that conflict with God's character. Now, you know.